Heavenly Father, it is a marvel, Father, that we have come so far in this study and come through so much in our lives and in the world around us. It is such an appropriate set of circumstances, really, for us, Father, that we would experience the turmoil of something in our world, which only serves to remind us of the reality of the things you've taught us in your book. The end is near. We've seen that from all the signs that we've studied in this book. And our current events are just more of the same. And we know, Father, that that means that exciting times are ahead. For us, the excitement of escaping this world, overcoming it, and entering into your presence. And for the world itself, Father, difficult times, but times you will use to your glory. Help us, Father, to understand all that we've studied and will study tonight so that we may be more effective ambassadors for you in these days that remain. That has been our purpose and our hope in this study from the outset, Father, and we ask that that purpose would be met tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned at the outset tonight, we've reached our final study. This is the last in our lessons on the study of Revelation, and as we come to the end, we're going to enter into probably the most mysterious part of the book, and some would even say the most mysterious content in all the Bible. John is going to be asked to describe the new heavens and new earth. This is the creation that will follow the creation that we are a part of now. Uh, It will also follow the kingdom, which is a part of our current creation. So you can certainly sympathize with the challenge that John faced as he was given visions of things that don't exist in any form yet. And he doesn't tell us much about this world in the course of what we have in these two chapters. These are the only two chapters in the Bible, largely speaking, that address the new heavens and new earth. But what he does give us centers on the most important aspects of that time, the things that we need to know now. Chief among them is the capital city of this new world, a city that is called New Jerusalem. And last week as we entered into chapter 21, John gave us an introduction into this new world, into this new city. He said it would be a place without crying, without pain, without tears, without death. That sounds pretty good to all of us right about now, I imagine. In other words, this place yet to come will be the complete fulfillment of all that God has promised us in all of what we've read in the book and all of what we have in the Bible. This world was never revealed to the Old Testament prophets, not in any specific degree. The prophets prior to Christ were able to see only as far as the kingdom in terms of prophecy. Uh, And so for the most part, they didn't even know there was gonna be something after the kingdom. It fell to John and the book of Revelation to tell us about that. So now as we get into these last two chapters, the Lord is gonna reveal the curtain, open the curtain a little bit, let us look through past the time of the kingdom and into a time of history that we'll still be waiting for even after a thousand years in the kingdom. So in a sense, you could say this, that what will be true for the nation of Israel in the kingdom will finally be made true for all humanity when we get to the new heavens and new earth. And John's vision of this world, fleeting though it is, does give us enough to know that this coming earth and heavens will be significantly different from the one that we know now. In fact, it is so different, I imagine it's even hard for us to conceive of it from the words we read on this page. As I said last week, as we go through and we look at these differences, we're also gonna take note of the purpose in why God has changed the nature of his creation so much. Why he started one way with the world that we know now and why he changes it for something new in the end. And that will continue to build tonight. Now our tour returns here with John seeing the city from a distance and then preparing to measure the dimensions as he's required to do by his angel escort. Let's drop in there with him in chapter 21. It's in verse nine that we pick up again. I'll read there. And then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. 
There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Well, this is our our opening view of the city. The angel escorting John on the tour describes this city of New Jerusalem as the bride of Christ. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, you know that the bride of Christ is a title reserved for the church saints, for the church generally. But when you get to the new heavens and new earth, that title will now transfer from the church to the city itself. And if you think about it, that makes perfect sense. Because remember, the term bride of Christ always refers to the dwelling place of Christ, of Christ's spirit. So just as in an earthly marriage, a man and a wife, when they get married, they become one flesh. Well, in the same sense, you could say that when Jesus brought us into faith and made us his bride, that is the church, we became one body with Christ, the Bible says. So in that similar sense, it was two becoming one. And in the church age, we were the bride of Christ, but in the eternal age, Christ no longer dwells in us by his spirit. Rather, we're gonna be told in a minute, he dwells with the Father and the Spirit in the temple, in the city, so that the city itself is now the dwelling place of Christ, and as such, it is the bride of Christ. Now, we're there too, of course, dwelling with Christ, so we're all still together. Now, John's first view of the city is is really quite remarkable. You can see quite a few different examples online of what people have imagined this place to to look like. It's kind of interesting if you pour through them, by the way. You'll notice how many of them depart from Scripture in some of the details, which just goes to show that attention matters. Anyway, John's first view of the city gives us the shape of it. It's a perfect cube. The length and the width of the city is equal to the height of it in some sense, whether the buildings or some superstructure, we're not sure exactly how it's constructed, but it, move, it goes an equal uh, distance in all three dimensions. What's interesting though is John doesn't describe the earth that it's sitting on. Now we know John is on the earth, he's standing on a high mountain, so obviously there is some earth under his feet and that earth is holding up the city when it descends from heaven. But we don't know much about it. We don't know the shape of the earth. We don't know its size uh, apart from the fact that there is this city on top of it. And then John says the city gleams with the glory of God. It's like a diamond, which means it's brighter than our current sun is today because the glory of God is always brighter than the sun. And then curiously, the city itself, this cube, is surrounded by a high wall that has three gates on each side for a total of 12 gates. Now normally when you have a wall around a city, it's because you need defense, you're afraid of an attack. And that just makes you wonder in this case, why would this city need defense? Well, if you were to jump ahead a little bit in the text and look at verse 25, you'll notice that the gates that are in these walls are never closed. So clearly no one's worried about an attack. That's not the purpose of these walls. The walls and the gates themselves are not defensive fortifications, they're memorials. They're there to remind us of God's work prior to the existence of this creation, to remind us of what happened in the prior creation. John says in verses 12 and 13 in the passage that I read that each gate has an angel stationed at it and each gate has a name above it and the names of the gates correspond to the tribes of Israel. Now, it offers a little curiosity here for us because we know that there were actually 13 tribes in Israel after Jacob adopted Joseph's sons in place of Joseph, and yet there's only 12 gates. So it's, up, I guess, a guesswork here to determine which of the 12 made it onto the gates. My guess is that Manasseh and Ephraim are actually not mentioned, but rather Joseph is back to the original 12. Now, gates are, in any city, an entry point. So naming these gates after the 12 tribes of Israel is a pretty clear symbolic indication that Israel is our gateway into redemption and to a knowledge of God, to our relationship with God. God has worked through Israel throughout history since he established the nation to fulfill his promises of redemption. Paul says this clearly in Romans chapter nine, verse four. He says, speaking of Israel, he says they are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever, amen. So it's only appropriate 
in this new city that we're going to live in, that the entry gates into the city would memorialize those 12 tribes because, frankly, had there not been an Israel, there'd be no entry into this city for anyone. There'd be no city. In fact, without Israel, there'd be no covenants, as Paul said, no prophets, no law, no temple, no Christ. So truly, everyone enters through Israel, so to speak. But then notice also, those gates are arranged in a particular order around the outside walls of this city. They're in groups of three, three on each of the four sides, for a total of 12. And those numbers, as you probably guessed, are significant. The number three in scripture is the number for the Godhead, which reminds us that the architect behind all of this, of course, is God. And the work being God's alone, he nonetheless did that work through the agency of men, through specifically the tribes of Israel, in the case of those gates. And then you have the number 12. The number 12 in scripture represents God ruling through people, or his rule or authority expressed through government or other human institutions. And so in this case, 12 reminds us that God ruled through his work in the nation of Israel, through those 12 tribes. So when we're in that city, we'll have these 12 entrances that will forever remind us of how the Lord did the work through Israel that brought us ultimately into the city. And then similarly, John says if you take that drawing I'm showing you of the city from above and you just rotate it so you're looking at one side of it, then what you'd find looking underneath the gates and underneath the wall of the city is a multi-layered foundation. And he says that multi-layered foundation will memorialize 12 other men, in this case, the apostles. And you'll find 12 different layers of precious stone uh, in this uh, foundation, each of them representing one of those 12 men. Now the apostles were men that God chose, that Jesus himself chose in his ministry on earth. And they later became the men on which the church itself got its start. They were the early leaders of the church. They were the prophets, the New Testament prophets, which gave us the the books of the Bible, who gave us the books of the Bible. And of course, in their missionary work, they spread the gospel around the world, eventually establishing the church. So again, it's only appropriate that the foundations holding up the city would be those of the names of these men. And the memorialization of both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church together in this way, one separate from the other and yet working together in the architecture of the wall. It reminds us that the church and Israel are distinct. One does not replace the other or become the other. They remain forever distinct and yet they work together in God's plan. God had always intended that through the promises he gave Israel, he would bless all nations. And so Paul explains this relationship really nicely in Ephesians 2. I'm just gonna read this passage for us and then move on. But I want you to notice he uses some of the same language in this passage that we're now studying in the symbology of the city. He says in Ephesians 2.12, remember that you Gentiles were at time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Notice, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So I love the way Paul uses the language here that we're seeing again in Revelation, describing Gentiles in the church, that's for the most part you and me and those in the church everywhere today, describing us as fellow heirs with Israel in this household 
of God. Two groups, one separated by the law that God gave to the Israelites, but not to the Gentiles. By the way, this is a proof text for anyone who might be looking for evidence in the scripture that the law of Moses was never intended to be followed by Gentiles. Paul says it was actually what excluded us from being part of God's family. We didn't have the law, they did. But now Christ has done away with the law of Moses and broken down that dividing wall by having fulfilled it in his flesh, Christ has set it aside. And so now you have a combined family built on one foundation of the apostles and the prophets, or we could say like in Revelation, on the apostles and on Israel and their forerunners, and in so doing, bringing us together. So here in the new heavens and new earth, you live in a city that's gonna be constructed to remind you that there was a role for Israel and a role for the apostles of the church and that together God worked through men, notice again, 12 in both cases, to produce the outcomes that arrived at our opportunity to be in the city. And now we're gonna tour that city and it's not much of a tour, certainly nothing like what we saw when we looked in Ezekiel and got that great tour of the kingdom temple. In this case, it's very minimal. And John is given the opportunity to measure it again, much like we saw Ezekiel measuring the temple in the kingdom. And we'll start there in chapter 21, verse 15. He says, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and this city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, and the fourth emerald. The fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardis, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopt rays, I think, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. All right, now this is somewhat like what we saw in Ezekiel's book, that is in the sense that there will be measurements taken by a prophet. And remember that in the case of Ezekiel when he looked at the temple and the kingdom, We said he was measuring it for a couple of reasons, and the same things are true here. First, it gives you a perspective. It gives you some sense of the size, of the grandeur of this place. And then secondly, it just validates the reality of it, that it's a real thing, something that could be measured. But more than anything, it's there to simply amaze us, because when you look at what John says about this city, it is quite something. John first is told to measure it and he he measures the dimensions of it both in terms of width and and length and that ends up being a perfect square of 1,500 miles. Now that's obviously a city beyond anything we've ever seen here on this earth. In fact, that city, 1,500 by 1,500 miles, would span most of the continental United States today if it was on the earth today. And then, even more amazing than that, he's told that it's also the same height, 1,500 miles extending upward into the sky. So if we put this on a three-dimensional map and we say, let's look at the the city on that scale, you see it's laid out there on the earth and then rise it up, raise it up the same height, and you have this gigantic city sitting on top of something below it. We're not sure what the earth looks like below it, but it's sitting on something. Now, just to give you an appreciation for the scale of this thing, if you looked at today's planet and the height of the atmosphere of our planet today, the atmosphere of the Earth ranges uh, up to about 50 miles or so. That's what typically 50 to 100 miles is where people say the atmosphere has stopped. Just to give you a, uh, uh, some, some points of reference, you have uh, satellites today that will... Circle, uh, circle the Earth at about 100 miles in the lowest orbits, and in a geosynchronous orbit, you get up to about 26,000 miles away from the Earth, and this city is going to range up 1,500 miles, which is well within the span or the space of orbiting satellites. And, th- I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. In fact, it means that the world that's supporting this city must be vastly different than the world we know today. The atmosphere must be 
just very different, much higher or maybe not there at all. Maybe we don't need an atmosphere anymore. Uh, whatever is true about the earth, I'll tell you that if you have the penthouse suite in that city, you're gonna have one heck of a view uh, from the 1500 mile point. Anyway, the measurements here, 1500 by 1500, they, they serve to reinforce a certain meaning in the city as well, but you can't get it from your English Bible. As I said, my English Bible translates the measurements as 1,500 miles in every direction. But, uh, by the way, the city uh, is 1,500 miles. It's not measured in miles in Greek. If you were to look at the original Greek text, it doesn't say 1,500 miles. It says, instead, 12,000 stadium. That's what it actually says in your Greek Bible. Similarly, the wall height is only 72 yards in, in the English Bible, but in reality, that was 144 cubits. So you're looking here at numbers 12s and, and multiples of 12 that remind us again that God is at work through men in what he accomplished to bring us into this city. Another memorial, by the way. Also, as you saw in that photo, the gold's paved streets that we all have heard about. You heard earlier about you know, uh, gates made of pearls. That's where people get the pearly gates from. There's a little bit of folklore that's come along and attached itself to our understanding of our future out of these little bits and pieces of scripture. You know, people talk about going up to the pearly gates in heaven, but did you notice the gates made of pearl are not where we're gonna go when we die now. They're not even in the kingdom. They're after that in the new heavens and new earth. So they're far in the distance. And people talking about heaven having streets paved in gold. Not exactly. The new Jerusalem has streets paved in gold. Again, that doesn't come for a while. Those differences don't matter, I know, for most, for the most part when we're talking to people about God or heaven, but for a Bible student, it does matter that we get our facts right. Finally, the city is such a testimony to the beauty of God's creation and all of its extravagance. You didn't just have pavement made of gold. You had precious jewels everywhere. You had things being built by the best of any material you could find. It won't just be that we'll have those things in our drawers at home. They'll be everywhere around us. It will be as if, I guess, the value of things doesn't matter anymore because we'll have all that we need. Now, moving on with the tour, John begins to describe the city's inhabitants and that begins with first the most honored residents in the city. In Revelation 21, 22, we read this. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So John says, there'll be no temple in this city because the Godhead is the temple of the city. If you think about it, beforehand, God has always dwelled in a building, if he was with man at all, he was in a building or he was inside a human body in the case of the church. Now in the new heavens and new earth, he's not in any kind of physical structure anymore. Temples existed in the past to separate us from God, at least in some sense, because we could not be in the presence of a holy God. But now that all sin has been erased, all enemies are gone, the Godhead in fullness, all three members, can dwell with us in his person without anything between us and God. No temple building is required. God is the temple of the city. And moreover, notice both the Son and the Father reside together in this age because now the Father is finally able to appear and be part of the creation again. Not since Adam walked in the garden before the fall has the Father been able to do this. You remember Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15 when we looked at this passage a little while back that the Spirit would also be there, that all the Godhead would be together. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when he's speaking about how all this wraps up in the end, he says the end will come, that is at the end of the kingdom, and then he says Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when the God and Father has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. And then he jumps down to verse 28, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjects all things to him so that God may be all in all. 
That phrase, all in all, it's a bit of a mystery what Paul's saying there, but it would appear as though he's saying that the Godhead will finally be fully present, all in all, in the new Jerusalem. I think that's what he's speaking of. And because the Godhead is fully present, John goes on to tell us in the passage we just read that the light of the world will come straight from God. He is now illuminating the creation. He is the source of light. There is now no moon or sun to cast light onto the earth. No need for those things because God himself is the glory of the world, the light of the world. And in verse 24, John adds that the nations of the world will walk in the light of the Lamb. So first thing you learn there is apparently there are nations now elsewhere around this planet or whatever it is that the city of Jerusalem is on or maybe we're all in the city but it's not clear then why the gates are there and where they lead. And you hear the kings of the earth bring their glory in. Now what that really means is that Paul is saying, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, all authority after the kingdom is abolished. So these guys are being called kings in the, in the historical sense, in the sense of what they had. Now all their glory is being brought into the city in a way, that's a way of saying, given back to the Father. He is now going to have all glory. And then finally in verse 25, John says, there has never been a period of night, or never will be, a period of night in the new world. Now that raises some interesting questions for us, along with some of the things we just saw a moment ago about God being the light of the world. It kind of causes us to wonder about the construction of this place a little bit, about the earth itself. For example, if God is the only light, and assuming physics works the same way in this new world as it does now, then it would suggest that the planet is actually flat, because If God is in one place in that city and his light is emanating from that place, well, you wouldn't have darkness then anywhere, which means you can't have a round object with darkness on the backside. Or maybe that's not the case. Maybe that the light is just everywhere. It doesn't come from God like a beam. He literally just has light everywhere because he's on the earth. Or maybe the physics of that time is different and as a result, then light can move around the planet. We don't know. But... Whatever the shape of the earth is, there is no darkness on any part of it. And then another thing that might catch your attention, you have this dark period of the 24-hour clock, if you will, being subtracted from our experience on this earth. And that's not the first thing that's been taken away. You remember earlier that there are no seas on this new heavens and new earth. And now we hear there is no sun, no moon, and no dark as well. There keeps being this subtraction of things from the experience we have here on this world. And it raises the question, why is God changing the design? You know, we know that he is not prone to changing his mind. We know that he doesn't make mistakes. And so it begs the question, why did he make one world one way and another world another way? If the new heavens and new earth is the better of the two, why not start with that? Why did the first world have these other features? Well, Let's review a couple things first. Let's review first the creation account, and by that I mean, let's begin with the fact that the world was made out of water. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3, 5. For when they maintain this, talking about scoffers, he says, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. What Peter says in those two verses is quite profound. He says, first, if you look back at the creation account carefully in chapter one, you find that water was the beginning of all things, that the land came out of the water. It emerged out of the water. And so the water of the early beginnings of creation was the material from which God was making other things on the earth. The earth was made out of water, Peter says. But then Peter goes to the next verse and explain why that was so. It was done that way because, Peter says, God knew there was a day coming in the history of the planet in which God would want a large quantity of water because he intended to use it to bring judgment on a sinful planet. So the original earth was made out of water and, as he said, by water so that that water would be available later to act in judgment over the earth. And of course, we know he's talking about Noah's flood. Next point, 
We know that in the creation account, God started with light and darkness, and he started there even before the planet existed in any form, even before the sun, of course, existed. We read this in Genesis chapter one, verse two. It says the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. If you have an interest in the creation account, and I hope you do, let me encourage you that there is a study on our website devoted strictly to that topic. We have the whole Genesis study, of course, but we also have done a separate focused study on the creation account, and it's in video form. If you go to the Verse by Verse Ministry International website, you can find that. Just click on videos and look for our creation study. But for our purposes tonight, there's just a few things we're trying to highlight to explain why the new heavens and new earth is different than the first heavens and earth. And in the case of light and dark, you notice the Lord began with an alternating cycling of light and dark before there was anything in creation at all, even before there was a sun. This alternating pattern of light and dark, like this. What does that allow? That allows the measurement of the passing of time. What God created on day one was time. The ability for us to track the movement of time, which is why it then can be called day one, because now we've had a light and a dark, day one. And later, he adds a sun and a moon on day four, but it can't be for the purposes of just having light and dark. That already exists, and here's why he said he added those objects later. In Genesis 1.14, then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and to let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. You notice in the design of the original earth, day and night, made, it, uh, made the, the passage of time be countable, and then God added the sun and the moon to give periodicity to the cycle. That is, they were not created to just make light, not strictly speaking, though they also do that. Light existed on day one, and so we know light can exist without a sun, if that be God's purpose. No, the principal reason that he added them, as he said, was for signs and to count time and to control the earth's seasons. So in the new heavens and new earth, these things aren't needed anymore. For example, in the new heavens and new earth, there will no longer be a need to count time, not in the same way that we do now nor will there be seasons, there's no indication of that, nor will there be a need for signs. You know, we we sometimes think of time as endless while we sit here on this earth. Certainly the, the unbelieving world would tell you that. The unbelieving world says that this earth is, for all intents and purposes, eternal, and you are very temporary. But the Bible says the opposite. We are eternal beings, and we live on a very temporary planet. And As you sit here on this earth and you experience it in the way we do, it's easy to think that time is just this endless counting up and it's a way of remembering how far we've come. But from God's point of view, time has a limit and our calendar is not a counting of time up. The Bible says our calendar is a counting down and the countdown is until the end of the earth and to the end of time itself. Because when we reach the new heavens and new earth, we won't be counting time anymore. Not in the way we did. Because the objects that were created for the purpose of marking time are gone. Without nights, then there are no days to count. And without a sun, there are no years to count. So time is literally endless. Now as we see later in this study tonight, we do count months, but that's for a different reason. We'll come back to that. Now, Let's move into the final chapter. So to summarize, we know that the earth had seas in the beginning, in part because God was gonna use that water for a judgment. No need for that in the new heavens and new earth, no judgments to follow. We'll come back to that topic later. And then secondly, we know that there is no night, no sun, no moon, because those objects had specific purpose in our day as far as time and counting of time. We don't need that either. But there are spiritual purposes for these things as well, which we will come to a little later tonight. 
But for now, let's move on. We're gonna get into the final chapter. There are a few more details here, more strange and interesting details, and we wanna take those into account as well. Chapter 22, verse one. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse on the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Well, obviously some things repeating there from what we just studied, but some new things as well, including some tantalizing details about the geography and a few other features of the city. First, from the throne of God, so God is present in the city as we know, from out of his throne comes a crystal clear river of water called the water of life, and it flows right through the city, right through the center of a broad street, and on either side of that street, spanning the river in some sense, is a tree called the tree of life. So the tree straddles the river, it seems, and it gains its life from the water. And then the tree, in turn, produces fruit in this unique pattern of a monthly fruit, a different fruit every month for a total of 12 different fruits on the tree. And one more thing, the leaves have a healing power for the nations, for those who are living in the new heavens and new earth. Now this tree, let's think about this tree for a moment. It's called the tree of life. We know we've seen this tree before. The last time this tree was on earth was at the very beginning. Here again, another connection between the beginning of the book and the end of the book, that is, of the Bible. And in the very beginning, in the garden, we read this, chapter two of Genesis, verse eight. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So interestingly, think about it for a minute, you have Adam and you have woman, and they're eating of this tree before they're corrupt, before they've sinned, before they've come under a condemnation of God, before they've come under the sentence of death. So they're eating of the tree of life when they have not got death. And then when God comes and finds them having sinned and pronounces a curse upon them, he then puts them outside the garden as a penalty. We read that a little later in Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east uh, of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. It's pretty clear that God did not want Adam and woman eating from that tree once they sinned. He said specifically that if they ate from that tree, it would allow them to avoid physical death. They could have lived forever had they maintained access to that tree. And as grace to them, he didn't allow that because his plan for them was better than that they would maintain their life as it was then in sin His goal was that he would replace that with a better life, as we've learned. So, he says, because they came from dust, they're gonna return to dust. That was part of the consequences of their sin. So, here you have them able to eat when they haven't sinned, unable to eat after they've sinned, and yet it's called the tree of life. That is, it's a tree that can sustain the physical life of humanity indefinitely. It almost seems backwards, doesn't it? You would think that before they experienced death, they wouldn't need the tree, and that after they experience death, God would welcome them to eat from it as a solution. But it doesn't work that way. You remember something similar from the description of the kingdom that we studied in Ezekiel's book? Ezekiel and also a little in Zechariah, they told us about, in that case, the temple of the kingdom having a river that came out from it, and that river eventually split. Some of it went east, some of it went west, And in Ezekiel's description, he says that wherever that river went, it would cause things to grow. And particularly along the current Dead Sea Valley, it will create fruit trees to grow. And in Ezekiel's account, he also mentions, we didn't study this here, 
But in Ezekiel's account, he also mentions that one of the trees that will be living in the kingdom along this river is the tree of life. So the tree of life is not only mentioned in the garden, it's not only going to be in the new heavens and new earth, it's also mentioned as being present in the kingdom. And this explains why the tree is part of the landscape of both the new heavens of earth and the kingdom. It would seem as though physical immortality is made possible by this tree. Everything lines up in that respect. That is, if a human being eats from this tree, the body won't die. It's why they had it in the first place. It's why they couldn't come back to it after they sinned, after Adam and woman sinned. It's why it exists in the kingdom, because there will be those who are like us, like the saints, glorified, and therefore we need to live forever. And it will be in the new heavens and new earth. Physical immortality is provided through the mechanism of this tree which God gives to those who he wants to maintain an immortal life. He wants to let live forever. But that just begs the new question, why did God invent this mechanism for that purpose? You notice in the way that this description goes in John's writing, the tree itself is very obviously being sustained by the water that comes from the throne. You notice that? All of this is to communicate that life comes from God that the water that flows out of the temple is bringing life to the tree and then life from the tree to us and so on. And in that way, God has established the tree as a mechanism to make a point. You know, when death is, is ever present, when life is fragile, as many feel that it is right now, of course, you're constantly reminded of your mortality. And because you're constantly reminded of your mortality, you're that much more mindful of your dependence on God. You know, like the old adage says, there are no atheists in a foxhole, I'm sure that's not actually true, but the point is that when things get to their darkest, that's when people turn to God. But reverse that for a moment. What happens when all your worries are gone? What happens when there is no death? What happens when there is no concern anymore about your future? Will you still remember God's goodness? Will you still uh, praise him for his life-sustaining power? Or will you just take it all for granted? I believe that's why God put this mechanism of the tree into the plan for immortality because it lets us understand on a regular basis where our life comes from, otherwise we might take immortality for granted and forget that the source of our life is God. So it's not that God needs the tree, it's that God instituted the tree to make a point to us about where the power of life comes. Then notice also the tree produces this monthly schedule of fruit, as I said earlier, and this will be the only timekeeping mechanism that we know of in the new heavens and new earth. There's no other way to count the passage of time except by the production of these fruit. And the fruit are not counting years, they're just in a cycle of months. No one's gonna be paying attention to how many times the cycle's gone around because it doesn't matter, it's endless. But we will know which month we're in. And though it's not said here, I'm presuming that the counting of months is valuable because it will help us maintain some kind of memorial around the feasts of Israel or some other set of observances tied to the events of our first creation or things given in the word of God. In in all cases, whatever it is, it will be a way of honoring God and his faithfulness just as the feasts of Israel were intended to do. Moving forward in the passage, verse three, John confirms that the curse of God on the earth is also gone at this point. That's the curse I referred to earlier that God brought to the garden after Adam's fall. So without a curse, the world is idyllic. That is, no weeds, no hard work, no sin, no death, everything perfect. And the work you will do in service to Christ will be done, he says, in joy, serving the Lord, something worthwhile, something enjoyable. We don't know what it will be, of course. And we'll do it in his presence, seeing his very face. And then he will put his mark on us, that is a seal, a name that will assure us that we are his forever. Lastly, verse five, John repeats, there's no night, there's no need of lamps, there's no sun, God's light is everywhere. You know, as I was thinking about this one more time coming through the text again, I even had myself asking, well, if I open up a drawer in my bedroom, are there shadows in the back of the drawer? Or is light so pervasive that you can't find even shadow in this time? It would seem to suggest that. And you might wonder, well, does that mean we won't be sleeping then? And it's not clear, but perhaps not. Or perhaps we just sleep whenever we want. 
Perhaps it's not on the schedule of light and dark anymore. It's, it's again, hard to know. Now, before we finish this chapter, I wanna do this review that I've been alluding to from the beginning. And by that I mean, we've been seeing how things have been subtracted. And I've already covered, in some cases, why those subtractions made sense. Because we didn't need what those things provided in this world when we get to the next world. Things like time, for example. But... There's a spiritual component to this, as you might imagine, or maybe suspected, that when we put the two creation accounts side by side, the one in Genesis and now this one, and we notice a pattern between them, we begin to see a spiritual conversation emerging. The first creation, we know, would soon be corrupted by Adam, and God knew that too, even before he laid the first foundation stone of the earth. He knew that sin would come, And because sin would come, it would lead to the curse and it would lead to judgment. And therefore, in the design of the first creation, the Lord instituted or incorporated certain features into the design of the earth in anticipation of sin's arrival. And he did so because those features in our creation would become useful to God later in illustrating important spiritual truths concerning sin and redemption. Let me give you some examples. In the first creation, God created a world with light and with dark so that he could illustrate righteousness and sin. And in the first creation, because he wanted light and dark, he uses it. You see an example in John 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You see in that clearly that Christ was drawing upon the features of our earth to make a point. Imagine how hard it would have been for God to describe to us about sin versus redemption if he did not have the pictures of light and dark that we all now take for granted. We wouldn't hear Jesus calling himself the light of the world, would we? And the Lord created seas knowing that he would eventually use that water to destroy the world as we read earlier, but more than that, The sea in scripture is an opportunity to uh, give illustration to the consequences of sin. In the first creation, God created seas, but none in the second. And in one example taken out of Genesis, I want you to notice how the word tehom in Hebrew, which is translated deep here, is used. Tehom is a word that is often used for seas in Hebrew. In Genesis 49, 25, from the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep, the tehom, or you could say the sea that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. In other words, in the Hebrew's way of thinking, the sea is a picture of hell, of the abyss, of Sheol. And as such, God uses the, de- the deep, endless depths of the sea, the darkness that never ends of the sea, as a way of picturing what it's like to go into the pit, so to speak. So the Lord created a world with night and a world with seas, and he did so in order to illustrate sin and death and eternal punishment. And, I might add, he did a lot of things on those same lines. He created a sun and a moon to institute the counting of time, as we said, and also, as we noted earlier, to give signs. Remember he said that the sun and the moon would also be given so that we would have signs? Well, what kind of signs? Well, signs of the approaching end of the age, signs of a coming judgment. We know that the sun goes to dark and the moon goes to blood at times as you approach the end. Most of all, notice the Lord made all of these design choices All of the things you see listed there on the left side, all of those choices were made before Adam existed, before sin existed. In other words, God's plan for the first creation fully anticipated and expected the arrival of sin. And so his design for the earth was already making accommodations for it even before it happened. And the Lord planned, as he did this, to have opportunity to speak from those things to us in his word so that we might understand something about our predicament. But looking at the right side, why are all of these things changed? Why are they all gone in the new heavens and new earth? Well, it should be obvious, right? There's no sin now. There's no death. There's no judgment. There's no hell. There's no Satan. There's none of the things that necessitated those earlier elements. 
And therefore, since the uh, things themselves are gone, then the things that illustrated them are likewise gone. So the first home was to be a home for fallen man, and the second home was to be a home for glorified sinless man, and the nature of the construction of each reflects its intended purpose. So God's very plan for creation has in it the anticipation of sin. And at this point you might ask, well, did God author sin? Does this mean he wanted sin? Well, you have to be careful with how you answer that question. The Bible says clearly God is not the author of sin. But it's equally obvious God built a world with the intention that sin would come. You know, if he didn't want sin, he wouldn't have put a tree in the garden. Or he would have made the tree a thousand feet tall and he wouldn't have given Adam a ladder. You know, it was very obvious that God put something in place that would allow for sin to come. He didn't author the sin, but it was intentionally going to come. God wanted it to come. It was part of the plan of God. And you might say, well, then why would God necessitate a a design that included sin? Well, Paul gives us a little hint of that in Ephesians 1. He says in 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Ask yourself this, why was he choosing us in Christ before the world even came about? Because the phrase to be chosen in Christ means to be redeemed, to be uh, brought back from sin, to have a savior, to have Christ die for us. Why was he talking about choosing us to be saved before there was ever sin. Well, it it, it tells you something about the purpose of the creation itself. The the first creation was put into place so that God could express his full nature and character into his creation and be glorified by his creation for who he is. But if the creation is to know God fully and truly, completely, such that we can glorify him for all that he truly is, well, then it's a necessity that we know all sides of him, which means we have to know that he's not only a God of mercy, but he's also a God of wrath. He's not only a God of forgiveness, he's also a God of judgment. That he doesn't just love us, he also hates sin. And if we're going to understand that that is the God that we serve, there needs to be an opportunity for him to justly exhibit all sides of his character. And so the creation was designed by God in such a way that the full nature of God would be on display through the circumstances that would transpire in that creation. And when it's all said and done, he will be glorified and praised for that plan. And now in the new heavens and new earth, we have a state in which no sin, no death and the like. So God is no longer in the, in the role of expressing certain sides of his nature, like judgment, for example, but he doesn't want that side of his nature to be forgotten, and so the very creation itself now in the new heavens and new earth, 12 gates, 12 foundations, and so on, will remind us forever of the fact that God has done what he's done, and the new heavens and new earth will have a tree in it that we have to eat from and leaves that will heal us, so to speak, so that we will always remember where our life and our uh, blessings come from, from the temple, from God. Now with that, we're gonna wrap up fairly quickly. The last part of chapter 22 is not so much description of the new heavens and new earth, but a kind of extended benediction. So let's move through it in two large chunks. First, verse six through 15. I'll start in verse six. And he said to me, John writing, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Behold, I am coming quickly, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. 
outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the immortal persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So Jesus is finishing the book here in his own words for the most part in a very personal way for John, I'm sure. First, he says, my words are faithful, they're true. You can trust the record of this book. Something similar was said in the letters to the churches, if you remember. And he says, you can receive it in complete confidence. This is the future, this is your future, and it is not a long way off. The same spirit who gave the prophets their words is the one who gave John these words. So if you've ever read Isaiah, and you've looked at how specific Isaiah was about the crucifixion, about Jesus, and you say, well, how did anyone not believe this? It was so accurate. Or if you read the book of Daniel and you, you look at how he speaks about the various kingdoms of the earth coming and going, and now we can see how perfectly accurate all of that was, and you read that and you wonder, why didn't someone believe that? It was obviously so well uh, written, so authoritative. Well, friend, did they get lucky? No. They had the Spirit of God telling them what was going to happen. That same Spirit wrote this book. This is just as accurate. It's just not all happened yet. And this is why it's trustworthy, Jesus said. And he says he's showing this to us, his bondservants, showing us things that will soon take place because he wants us to be ready. Now, we also know this was written 2,000 years ago. So you might be wondering, well, that's not very soon. He said it was going to soon take place. Well, in part, it's a problem with the Greek because the sense of it is less about the fact that, hey, it's going to happen today. It's more about the sense of when it happens, it's going to happen quickly. So it's going to unfold quickly. But you can also say that from the light of eternity, this is all going to happen pretty fast. 2,000 years is nothing in light of eternity. Still, what are we to do with it in the meantime? Well, Jesus answers that in verse 7, saying, first, I want you to note I'm coming quickly. And that's a direct reference to his coming for the church, or what we now call the rapture. In light of what will transpire, this is what he's saying, in light of what you've learned, in light of what you now know is coming in all regards in this book, it should be now your posture to be thinking about the end times, to be looking forward to the end times, to have this on your mind, or as I like to say, to have eyes for eternity. That should be the effect of reading this book. This is not like a novel you read and you forget about a day later. This is a book that changes the way you think about everything forevermore and puts you in a different state of mind, preparing for the Lord's return. Heeding the words of this book means allowing the reality of these coming events to bear on the decisions you make in your life. I mean, it's one thing to acknowledge intellectually that these things are interesting or that they're true or they're gonna happen, but it's a whole nother thing to let that knowledge influence your current life. That's what Jesus just said we are to do. Almost to emphasize the importance of that response, you see John saying in verse eight, that he fell to worship the angel like he's now going to do better things, so to speak. And I always love the angel's response to this whenever they get worship. They always say, don't do it. And I'm thinking that they're probably remembering the last time an angel had people try to worship him. That guy had a bad outcome. They don't want to follow in his footsteps, so they ask him to get up before someone sees you. But it's also a reminder, of course, to us, let's not elevate any servant of God to some place they don't deserve to be. We worship God alone. Next, verse 10, John is told that unlike John's predecessor, Daniel, John is not to seal up this prophecy. You know, I've often said that the book of Daniel is like the Old Testament book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is the New Testament book of Daniel. They're really two sides of one coin in the way they work together. But Daniel, when he got his amazing visions, one of the last visions he received, he was told to seal up. That was the vision that John ultimately gave to us in chapter 11 and afterward. So when Daniel first got it, it was so far in advance, it wasn't appropriate that it be shared yet. That awaited for John. But now, with the time being short, with the world reaching its appointed end soon, there's no need to hold it back now. That's why it's been made available to us in the book of Revelation. And let that be counsel to any Christian who has been told or maybe felt themselves that this is a book to be feared or to be avoided. On the contrary, this book starts with a blessing And it ends with Jesus telling us the time is near. You need to understand what this book says. That's why we have it. In fact, I think it's indication to us how close we are to the end that the meaning of this book is so easily understood now when in prior generations that was not always the case. As we've gotten closer to the end, the Lord has made it easier for us to know that we're there. 
And finally, verse 11, John is reminded that the fact that this book may be understood in our time does not necessarily mean that unbelievers will profit from it. On the contrary, the angel says unbelievers will continue to go about their sinful ways. That's a given. It's only gonna be if the spirit interrupts that course with faith that they might change from that path. But he says, meanwhile, those of us who have the truth, we are also to maintain our path. And in verses 12 through 15, Jesus gives a couple of final calls, one to the believer, one to the unbeliever. Consider this, in a way, your ultimate altar call in the Bible, this final chance for the Lord to make his own appeal. For the believer, he simply says, I'm coming quickly, and I'm bringing a reward. I'm gonna repay you for your deeds. This is a reminder of the judgment seat of Christ and of our rewards on the line. And then in verse 14, he turns to the unbeliever, and he calls for them to to desire for the good things that we've seen unveiled in this book. Desire to be washed clean by the blood of Christ. Desire to eat of the tree of life. Desire to walk into the gates of the city rather than to perish in the lake of fire. But if they refuse that call, verse 15, he says, it will be those who practice the unrighteous acts of sin and love those things. Those are the, the things that typify a heart of unbelief. He's not saying that if you do any of those things, you're automatically unsaved, that's not the point. He's saying this is typical of the attitude of an unbeliever. And if you practice and love these things and you do not repent of this chosen lifestyle, you will be left outside the city, outside all of these things. By the way, that reference to being outside the city gives us one more moment before we end tonight to look at the geography of this place Because it's not just an idle comment that he says you'll be outside the city when he says you'll be in the lake of fire. It's as if God is saying, Jesus is saying, these two places are not far removed from one another. It's a hint of where the lake of fire may be. That is, we may actually reach a point in which the lake of fire is on the new earth, whatever that looks like, somewhere within sight, perhaps, of where we will be in the new heavens and new earth. But it's also a reason why the earth itself may not be a globe. Because if you take a 1,500 square mile cube and try to put it on a globe, you end up with it not fitting. It it would have to bow to sit there on that globe. And so either the earth is far bigger, such that 1,500 miles doesn't begin to exceed the curvature of the earth, or it's a flat plain that we're seated on, or the city itself is bowed, or who knows but it's just another interesting little consequence. Finally, let's just end the book with the last passage, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the church. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost, and I testify to everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. Well, just a brief few comments as we end tonight. First, Jesus testifies one last time. I am the Messiah. I am the descendant of David. You kind of get a sense in this that Jesus knew uh, that people might doubt this book. They might doubt or misinterpret the meaning of it. They might even dismiss it. And he's gone to such great lengths here in this book to make these appeals for us to believe it, to know it's true, it's coming. He is who he said he is. Just don't doubt it. You know, there is no other book of scripture in which Jesus speaks to the reader in the first person as the incarnate Christ. This is the only book of the Bible in which he does that. And there is no other book of scripture in which he emphasizes so strongly that you should trust what is being written here. This book is very unique in that respect. And then he offers this final call to believe, verse 17. He says, the spirit and the church are saying to you, come, that is, come to faith in Jesus. The spirit is the one through whom the church makes its appeal to you, the spirit of God is the one who is touching people's hearts. And of course, the bride here is the church. So what Jesus is saying to you who would read this book for the first time, perhaps, is know that in these calls to faith, it's not coming from a book 
a mere book. Uh, it's not coming from you know, somebody else's words. It's coming from the church. We are here to help you understand this is true and the spirit is amongst us in this uh, moment. Anyone who would thirst for righteousness and for peace can have it at no cost, Jesus says. And then finally, the book ends with a well-known warning. It's a stark contrast to that invitation. He says, think twice about adulterating this scripture. He says, if anyone tries to make changes to this book, they will not enter the city of God. They'll be erased. Their name will be removed from the book of life, so to speak. They'll experience all the plagues of this book, or at the very least, they'll experience the lake of fire. They may not live through tribulation. They may not get everything. The point is that this outcome will be theirs. And by the way, it's not to say that the person was already saved and they were taken out of the book. The language, I know, would suggest that they are being taken out when he says that he will remove their name. That's just a consequence of a parallelism in the original Greek. Jesus is using a play on words here. He's saying, you remove my words, I remove you. That's not to suggest they were ever there, of course. And in fact, anyone whose heart is to disrupt or to... um, change or destroy the word of God, that's not a heart of a believer, generally speaking. So this warning goes not only to the book of Revelation, but it goes to the whole Bible. I would submit to you that the Spirit, being the author of the whole Bible, through men, would know, of course, that this would be the last work in the Bible, and knowing that, then he would add this warning at the very end, and by logical extension, not just for the last book, but for the whole of the Bible. The entire work of Scripture is inspired, even in the number of books we have and in the order of the books. And so these words were placed at the end of the Bible for a reason. It is a warning that we should not change the word of God in any way. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And John adds, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. To which all I can add is amen. Well, the grace of the Lord be with all of us, with his children, until he comes, and I'm sure that's not very far off. I ask that you would Keep these things you've learned in your mind and share them with as many people as you can for the days are short. And of course, I hope you've enjoyed this study. I hope you've learned a few things. I hope it's been helpful to you. I'd encourage you, as I said, to share it. As we go into a time of prayer now on our last night, we'll take questions as we do always. Mike's got a a bunch already, I'm sure, and there's probably a few more coming. So send them in now while you can, and we'll answer as many as we can in our final night. And I uh, thank you for being a part of it with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for this opportunity to teach, even with the unexpected world events that conspired to stop us, Father, you and your grace, and in your providence brought us through it and helped us finish. And I thank you, Lord, that your word has gone out and done what you have intended it would do and that nothing has stood in its way. And now, Father, in the years that might follow with whatever comes of this work, I pray, Father, you would use it mightily to your glory. Thank you for our evening, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.